0: Welcome to a non-fiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff, I'm the author, and this is Dedication, Building the Seattle Branches of Mary Baker Eddy's Church, a Centennial Story. Episode 24, Incorporation. The members of the University District Christian Science Society looked forward to building a church with hopeful expectations. But before they could purchase any real estate, they needed to formally organize. They needed to become a legally recognized entity, a corporation. At the September 1915 quarterly business meeting, the members decided to take steps toward incorporation. As part of that process, they would upgrade their organization from a society to a church, a Church of Christ Scientist. This raised the issue of establishing a Christian science reading room, because all Christian science churches were required to have one. They were already supporting the jointly maintained reading room downtown in the Empire Building, but at the end of 1915, the new third church began discussing the idea of establishing their own reading room in the university district. The membership decided that at such time as the society has provided sufficient funds and feels that the time has come for the reading room to be established, that this be done. The next issue to resolve was their name. Third Church of Christ Scientist Seattle had already been used by a group whose short-lived organization was dissolved in December 1909. Consequently, for several years, Seattle had a first, second, and fourth church, but no third. Two other Christian science societies had already been formed in Seattle, in West Seattle and Columbia City. So the University District was the seventh Christian Science Congregation formed in Seattle. So it might have been expected that the University District Society should be seventh church, but that would leave a number gap in the list of Seattle churches in the Christian Science Directory ever after, a continuing reminder that a Christian Science Church had failed. The U District Society contacted church officials at the Mother Church in Boston, as well as all the other Seattle churches, about the issue of numbering. All gave their approval for the reuse of the name Third. So the group moved forward with that name and sent in the forms for incorporation to the Washington Secretary of State. The corporation was officially created December 22nd, 1916. When Third Church Incorporated, they rented two adjoining rooms in the University Bank building for their reading room. The initial advertised hours were noon to 9 p.m. every day, except on Wednesdays they closed early at 7 p.m. before the Wednesday testimony meeting. It was also open Sundays from 2 to 7 p.m., Their listing in the Christian Science Journal as Third Church first appeared in early 1917. Not much was added to the building fund for the newly incorporated church because there was a new need to devote the first Sunday collection to a special relief fund run by the Mother Church. The fighting that had begun in Europe in 1914 had escalated. As a Christian science publication later put it, hell's stores were opened and an anguished world convulsed. The war had spread to more countries, becoming a worldwide war. The Mother Church had started a relief fund in October 1914 to which all branch churches and societies were invited to contribute. Initially, the focus was financial support in affected countries for Christian scientists who were under great distress. The war disrupted the economy, businesses closed, jobs were lost, entire industries were affected, and buildings were destroyed. Men were called for military duty. Families had to find new homes and income sources. Mr. William D. McCracken a member of the Christian Science Board of Lectureship, traveled to Europe to organize relief efforts. Fund managers reported that the charitable love expressed through the gifts of money and supplies helped recipients overcome the grip of fear, enabling them to take their own independent steps toward improving their situation. By December, the scope of the relief effort was expanded, to anyone impacted by the war. It was an issue of debate in America to what degree the United States should strengthen its military defenses or participate in the war, if at all. On this question, the Christian Science Church was not silent. In 1916, a statement in an editorial in the Christian Science Monitor was reprinted in the Seattle Times. Mary Baker Eddy was in local headlines again, with her own words and those framed in a positive light, possibly a first for the Seattle Times. Mrs. Mary Baker Eddy, founder of the Christian Science Church, is quoted by the Christian Science Monitor as an advocate for national preparedness for the Navy and Army against invasion, One of the most remarkable editorials which has appeared in the greatest of the Christian science newspapers, the words of Mrs. Eddy, written by her in 1908, are quoted thus, "'It is unquestionable, however, that at this hour the armament of navies is necessary for the purpose of preventing war and preserving peace among nations.'" The editor of The Monitor argues that since evil in the world has not disappeared, but threatens to overwhelm good, the doctrine of non-resistance cannot yet be accepted in the world. The Monitor squares the proposed military preparedness with the doctrines enunciated by Mrs. Eddy. In conclusion, it declares, The absolutely vital question, therefore, for a nation on the eve of preparedness It appears to be that there should be in its thought no dream of conquest, no idea of preparedness for aggression. When a great nation prepares for war, it should prepare with the conviction that it will never need to put out its strength, but it should prepare so as to be able to defend that which is good. This stand is declared to be the only scientific one to accept. Not long after the first official listing for Third Church of Christ Scientist and its new reading room appeared in the Christian Science Journal directory the United States officially entered the World War just after midnight on April 6, 1917 the residents of Seattle learned that Congress had passed a war resolution the Seattle Times had said it would blow its whistle when it passed So when the five whistle blasts were heard distinctly throughout the city that night, people knew exactly what it meant. Another blast at 10.15 the next morning announced that President Woodrow Wilson had signed the bill into law. That day, headlines on American military mobilization took the place of the newspaper masthead on the front page of the Seattle Times. It was all a very suitable way of telling the people that a history-making epic has arrived. A political cartoon on the editorial page of the Times showed an oversleeping Uncle Sam abruptly waking by the alarm of war from his slumber on the pillow of pacifism. The Times called for unity. The United States today is at war, Whatever division and sentiment there may have been in the country yesterday, there can be none today. In the face of a common enemy, this people can no longer be pro-this or pro-that. They must be Americans, simply and solely. The time for action has arrived. Yet, though the hours be few and precious, There still is a little space for sober consideration of the future. First, let us remember this. Having entered upon war, the United States must emerge from it a victor. We have enunciated certain principles in the defense of which we are taking the field, constructively at least. When the struggle ends, those principles must be the principles upon which peace is concluded. We have announced our determination to overthrow a system of autocratic militarism which menaces popular government throughout the world. The United States alone, not England, France, Italy, or Russia, must assure the triumph of that noble idea. At the annual meeting of the members of the Mother Church in Boston in early June, William D. McCracken, who was then president of the church, likewise called for unity and action to support the war effort. The need of the hour is powerful and loving cooperation. The enemy stands at the gates, and those within the protecting shelter of the Mother Church are more than ever under obligations to support each other. Cooperation means working together for the same end. It certainly involves the rejection of all apathy, indifference, or sluggishness. There should be no question in our minds that our duty to God involves loyalty to a righteous government and to its constituted authorities. Those who enjoy the protection of a government in times of peace should be willing, by their alertness to duty, to protect that same government in times of war. This is the time when we can encourage each other and sink our differences of human opinion out of sight. We are members of a church which has become worldwide and is calling under its beneficent shelter the sick and the sinning everywhere. In order to do justice to them, we must learn to do justice to each other. We can assume in every instance that the motive which actuates our brother is a good one. Time will test it. We are an army of Christian scientists. The United States has called Americans to war for the protection of certain ideals. Let us ask ourselves the question, are we laggards or are we filling our places individually? praying daily, as well as giving freely of our activities as God outlines for the protection of the free institutions which must spread to all nations of the world. Are we real soldiers, keeping step together, shoulder to shoulder, eyes straight ahead, saluting the commandants in strict attention to the commands of our leader to love one another, to be fruitful in season and out of season, holding our standards so high that it fills the sky and resounds around the world with its helping and saving power. Within 60 days, the entire Christian science movement in the United States was completely organized and at work and able to quickly respond to any needs. In every state, a war relief committee was appointed who then organized subcommittees in every town and city where a Christian science church or society existed. They recruited 2,000 volunteer war relief workers, hired 200 full-time employees, plus 10 chaplains. They organized thousands of helpers to produce comfort kits of hand-knit sweater vests, socks, blankets, hats, scarves, and toiletries for civilians affected by war and soldiers heading off to battle. They purchased and operated 69 automobiles and two small ships. They set up organizational headquarters, supply centers, and volunteer cooperatives. As a church report later explained, Even to a group so accustomed as our Christian scientists, to seeing the so-called impossible accomplished, the progress of the work of this committee during the later months of 1917 and the earlier ones of 1918 was astonishing. One way the committee supported the troops was in the establishment of Christian science welfare rooms at every military training camp. The welfare rooms were similar to Christian science reading rooms, and sometimes they used that name on signs. Although their primary focus was support and spiritual training of soldiers from Christian science families, they offered any visitor a quiet place to read and write, a cordial welcome and an atmosphere of refinement and culture. They had desks and tables for reading and writing. The rooms were also decorated with the homey touches of couches, easy chairs, curtains, elegant lamps, bouquets of flowers and vases, potted plants, and often had fireplaces and pianos. On the walls were hung framed pictures of Mary Baker Eddy and the Mother Church edifice in Boston. The welfare rooms offered Christian science literature and books for studying the Bible lesson, They could double as an auditorium for church services on Sundays and Wednesdays. They often had private rooms for counseling and Christian science treatment. They provided a meeting place for visiting family members and were used for hymn sings, social activities, and holiday parties. These welfare rooms were established throughout the United States, in Canada, England, and France. They were in tents, rented rooms, or buildings erected for this purpose. The war relief workers at the training camps did anything they could to support the soldiers. Helpfulness was the keynote of their efforts. They offered rides to soldiers, delivered copies of the Christian Science Monitor to anyone interested in the news, engaged with everyone on base, They talked with soldiers about their personal challenges and gave free Christian science treatment to anyone who asked. They visited hospitals, stockades, and prisoner-of-war camps. The staff for the welfare rooms often lived on site. They were up with the birds in early dawn and often active with their work until midnight. Many of these war workers were journalistic Christian science practitioners or first readers at local branch churches. Mr. C. Macklem was put in charge of the Washington State Committee, which planned for a Christian science welfare room at Camp Lewis, the Army base south of Tacoma. This welfare room started out as two tents in a grove of trees. Over a period of ten days, Forty Christian scientist soldiers built a small cottage. Then, a large building was built at the cost of $6,120, and the cottage became a residence for the workers. Built in the bungalow style, it had a large main room with a fireplace at the end for reading room and auditorium, plus a separate writing room and two private rooms for Christian science treatment. In Washington State, there were five Christian Science Welfare Rooms. Besides the building at Camp Lewis, there were rooms at the naval bases in Bremerton and Port Townsend, in southern Washington and Vancouver, and one in downtown Seattle. The Welfare Room in Seattle was called the Christian Science Soldiers and Sailors Hospitality Club. It was on the second floor of the Empire Building, where at least 16 Christian science practitioners, including three teachers, had their professional offices, and where so many other joint activities of the Seattle Christian Science Churches were based. The Seattle welfare activity was led by O.J.C. Dutton. Mr. Dutton was a new member of Third Church. Not long after Congress declared war, and just after Mr. McCracken gave his recruitment message to Mother Church members, while thousands of young men were enlisting for military duty, this civic-minded former Episcopal vestryman enlisted in the Army of Christian Scientists. Fully dedicating himself to his new religion, he signed the membership book at Third Church on June nineteenth. 1917, was elected to the executive board that fall, and in 1918, he became church president. On top of all his new church duties, Dutton took charge of establishing and overseeing the Seattle Welfare Room for soldiers. The Soldiers and Sailors Hospitality Club was later either moved or possibly expanded to a building at 4th Avenue and Pine Street, where, in addition to providing entertainment, apparently they were able to add a dormitory for visiting soldiers for night and day operation. According to the Seattle Times, they provided sleeping quarters for 200 men. O.J.C. Dutton was chairman of the whole organization, which was funded by monthly subscriptions from individual Christian scientists. Even after becoming actively involved in the Christian Science Church and its welfare work, Dutton continued to be active in many other civic organizations. On July 4, 1917, an Independence Day that the Seattle Times declared held new meaning that year, Mr. Dutton helped arrange and served as Master of Ceremonies for Seattle's Celebration of Americanization Day at Woodland Park, where new citizens pledged their allegiance to the Stars and Stripes. Other prominent Christian scientists in Seattle, even with all their regular church activities, and now the Christian science welfare work, somehow made time to be involved in other organizational work supporting the war effort. Christian science teacher, Alan H. Armstrong, and church officers at First Church of Christ Scientist, Oliver C. McGilvra, and Charles A. Griffith, all served as precinct captains in the Minutemen organization for enrolling men in the military reserves. But as Christian scientists, ultimately, they would have considered prayer to be the most important way they could support the war effort. They would have read, in Mary Baker Eddy's writings, her Prayer for Country and Church. Pray for the prosperity of our country and for her victory under arms. In your peaceful homes, remember our brave soldiers, whether in camp or in battle. Oh, may their love of country and their faithful service thereof be unto them life-preservers. May the divine love succor and protect them. Great occasion have we to rejoice that our nation will be as formidable in war as she has been compassionate in peace. May our Father-Mother God, who in times past hath spread for us a table in the wilderness, And in the midst of our enemies, establish us in the most holy faith, plant our feet firmly on truth, the rock of Christ, the substance of things hoped for, and fill us with the life and understanding of God and goodwill towards men. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.